Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1926, the 30th season of the VFL. 1926 was a challenging year for some. February and March saw bushfires rage across Gippsland. The worst day was the 14th of February, known as Black Sunday, where 31 people were killed in Warburton. In the United Kingdom, there was a nine-day general strike in May in support of coal workers protesting wage reductions and worsening conditions. In October, Harry Houdini died from a ruptured appendix. Houdini had visited Australia in 1910 and completed one of the first powered aeroplane flights in Australia at Digger's Rest, amongst other highlights of his tour. On a more technical, political note, there was an imperial conference in London of members of the British Empire. The result was the Balfour Declaration which was a formal recognition of the equal status of the United Kingdom and the Dominion states such as Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Australia's development as an independent country was an emerging work in progress rather than something that was complete at Federation, and the 1926 Imperial Conference was an important milestone. Nothing really to do with footy, but it does provide some context that the players and spectators of this era were living in. On a lighter note, 1926 was the year that Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova toured Australia. At some point, the Pavlova dessert was invented in her honour. But was it in Australia or New Zealand? The argument still rages back and forth across the Tasman. And, in country New South Wales, a 17-year-old boy scored 300 runs for Barrel against Mossvale. There was talk that the New South Wales selectors might invite the lad down to Sydney. He might have some potential, that young Don Bradman. And, while talking about cricket, it's also also worth noting that in December, Victoria scored a world record 1,107 runs in their first innings against New South Wales, a record that still stands today. The start of the year saw the clubs having their annual general meetings. Geelong had their meeting in January, and, with the Premiership success still front of mind, it was a happy occasion. A large crowd attended, and the club president, Dr Piper, recalled the years that people spoke of dropping Geelong out of the league, but the last three seasons had shown the club had much to offer. In a sign of the times, an effort to allow women to become members and be allowed to vote was lost by a large majority. At the other end of the spectrum was Hawthorne's annual general meeting in February that showed the club had fewer members in their first year in the VFL than when in the VFA. There was also a debt of £440. The second 18 was in a mess and rumours swirled that the club would be dropped from the VFL. But the committee had plans. The VFL was sure to keep the club due to its strategic position in the East and with some more support from local citizens circumstances would improve. March 1926 saw the league appoint a new president, Dr William McClelland, a medical doctor who had played in Melbourne's 1900 Premiership and captained the Red Legs for four seasons, before retiring after a career of 75 games. He had served as Melbourne's delegate to the league and had been president of the club since 1912, but resigned that position on taking up the VFL presidency. He was the league's fourth president, 
taking on the role in the competition's 30th year. Following on from inaugural president William McCracken, who held the post for 19 years, then Oliver Williams, who had a short three-year stint, resigning due to issues with the patriotic funds raised, or perhaps not actually raised, during World War I. After Charles Brownlow took on the role in an acting capacity, Walter Spencer had held the position for eight years. The league's administration had been remarkably stable as the competition grew to be the leading football code in the country, with Edwin Wilson still holding the position as league secretary, a role he commenced when the league was established in 1897. Dr McClelland would remain as president for 30 years before he passed on the baton to Kenneth Luke, but more about that in future episodes. The McClelland Trophy was initiated in 1951 for the club with the most points across the under-19s, reserves and seniors, and since 1991, the McClellan Trophy has been awarded to the AFL Minor Premiers. April 1926 saw practice matches, with some welcome rain softening the grounds and the season previews in the papers. As usual, expectations were high for an even bigger season than the one before. Clubs were reporting strong membership ticket sales and all the clubs were confident of a good showing, while new recruits were being put through the process to see which of the March champions would make it to the field for the May season starter. It would be an 18-round competition in 1926, one more than in 1925, but still not enough for every club to play each other twice. Attendance in 1925 had exceeded 2 million people and was expected to increase again. There were changes in the coaching ranks, with Ray Brew taking on the captain coach duties at Carlton after Jim Caldwell took a higher-paying coaching role with Rutherglen. Vic Belcher was back to coach Fitzroy after spending a season as playing coach in Launceston, his final effort as a player. Dan Minogue left Richmond to coach Hawthorne. He got a clearance after six years as captain coach, including back-to-back premierships in 1920 and 21. But he only played the opening game with Hawthorne and spent the rest of the season as non-playing coach. Mel Morris became the captain coach at Richmond, while Jim Cassidy took over coaching at Footscray. The one other change to the coaching ranks was at South Melbourne, where Charlie Panham, after staying off the field for three years because Collingwood would not clear him, could finally become a playing coach in his fourth year at the club. And, as reported in the Herald on the eve of the season, the league would award 25 gold medals to the club that won the premiership. In the modern era, there is sometimes a debate about whether all players at a club should receive the premiership medals, rather than just those who play on grand final day. It seems, in 1926, the league was looking to reward more than just the players of the day. The medals were eventually presented to Geelong for their 1925 premiership, but not before the season started, rather waiting until late August, when a function was held at the Geelong Theatre, with the medals presented by the President of Geelong, Jim Piper. It was hoped that the medals would provide a more permanent memento for the players than the caps, which had been the previous reward from the VFL. The history of Australian football was also a topic of interest back in 1926, when they were obviously much closer to the foundation events of our great game. An article in the Argus in September gave an overview of the game's origins, giving much credit to Henry Harrison, who co-wrote the original rules of the game with Tom Wills and others. 
Henry Harrison was still alive, aged 89, with his 90th birthday, due late 1926. And he was often given the title, the father of football. The challenge of the holding the ball rule was noted as an issue from a report of a game 60 years earlier, and it was observed that it was still the cause of much angst and commentary by players and reporters and supporters in 1926, as it is now, and probably always will be. The 1926 season opened on the 1st of May, and although the weather was threatening and some rain fell later in the day, there were 110,000 supporters across the six games. Geelong unfurled their first VFL Premiership flag in front of 15,000 at the Corio Oval when hosting Footscray and had a comfortable win. Fitzroy and Collingwood lined up for their 80th VFL game and the Magpies stretched their winning total to 44. Essendon were too strong for North Melbourne. Carlton travelled to Glenferry and beat Hawthorne. While Melbourne continued their good form of 1925, starting the season with a win over St Kilda. The closest game was between South and Richmond. The Tigers kicked six goals in the last quarter to win by eight points, a result that filled Richmond Barrackers with hopes of a big season. After six rounds, the ladder was beginning to take shape. The new clubs were still finding the going tough, Footscray and Hawthorne only having one win each, and North at the bottom of the ladder after six straight losses. While at the top of the table, Essendon, Collingwood and Geelong were on five wins each just separated by percentage. North Melbourne might consider themselves unlucky. They had lost to Geelong by 8 points, Hawthorne by 4 points, and South by 2 points. They'd also lost their coach, Well Zeke, the former St Kilda player who had led North in their first year in the VFL. After just three rounds, he resigned, stating that his business was interfering with his position as coach. Eek had also been on the injured list, which may have influenced his decision. But the Herald reported that there was dissatisfaction in the committee and some players with Eek's performance. Former player and club secretary Stan Thomas filled in prior to new captain Jerry Donnelly being given the role of playing coach for the remainder of the season. Eek would return to St Kilda to play three more games to end his career. A potentially awkward situation was also resolved in mid-May. Carlton's Horry Clover had hung up his boots after 1925 and been appointed club secretary and delegate to the league, where he was also appointed to the powerful umpire and permit committee. The chance to have a player with recent experience would have been welcomed by the other members of this important committee, as they provided advice and criticism to umpires. But things became tense when Horry Clover decided that he still had more to give on the playing field, and became an unretired player while there was nothing in the league rules stopping a current player from being on the umpire and permits committee. A few of the other members suggested it was not quite in order. Horry resigned from the committee and order and comfort in proceedings was restored. Away from the VFL, there was trouble in the midweek league, which demonstrates the larger role that unions had in everyday life of working men in this era. A small midweek competition had emerged for organisations that had staff working weekends. But the union-affiliated teams had objected to the Victorian police team competing in 1925, given all police who had gone on strike in 1923 had been sacked. So according to the union logic, those working for the police were taking the jobs of sacked unionists. 
they were strike breakers. In May 1926, a small competition had been established by the police, yellow cabs, telephone exchange and an Air Force team. A day later, an official from the Motor Transport Union called in at the yellow cabs garage in Carlton and told the workers that anyone playing in the Wednesday League would be expelled from the union. And every taxi driver was a union member. The Yellow Cabs team withdrew from the competition. It was not unusual for some VFL players to play in the midweek competition, but not if they were a taxi driver. As the season progressed, the consequence of Footscray, Hawthorne and North leaving the VFA to join the VFL was beginning to have an impact, but not on those clubs. Rather, the players that had moved in 1925, but were now being cut loose by their clubs. They did not have a VFL team to play for, and they were banned for three years from joining a VFA club. It had twice been debated at the VFA, with some clubs sympathetic to the players who had shown loyalty to their club before being cast adrift, but the majority of VFA clubs voted to maintain the three-year ban. The expansion of the VFL was a success for the league, for the clubs involved and their supporters, but the cost was being borne by a number of discarded players. Early June saw the King's birthday holiday long weekend, but there was no holiday for the VFL players. Round 7 was held on Saturday the 7th of June, and just two days later, another full round was played. Most of the players would then have some respite, with an interstate game against South Australia being scheduled for the following Saturday at the MCG, as well as the VFL team taking on New South Wales and Sydney. South Australia had a rare but welcome victory on the MCG, winning by 11 points, while the team sent to Sydney won their game by 5 goals. Mid-June saw the resignation of Footscray's coach Jim Cassidy due to ill health. He had served the club for 20 years as player, captain, trainer and coach, but he was unable to see the season out. Harry Saunders, who had played 135 games for Collingwood, including two premierships, and also the opening two games of the 1926 season, before retiring, received a clearance from the Magpies and became the non-playing coach of Footscray. One of the rare people, like Wells Eek, at North and St Kilda, also this year, and Gordon Rattray in 1924, who coached at one club, but played for another, in the same season. Saturday, June 26, saw a crowd of 30,000 people at Princess Park, where Collingwood and Carlton were playing in the match of the day. Collingwood was first in the ladder, and Carlton, again behind, were fourth. The Blues led all day and won by 21 points, but much more drama was about to unfold after the game. There was a misty rain on a cold evening, and a crowded tram ran into the back of another on the corner of Ligon and Newry Streets. Football supporters were thrown about as the second tram telescoped into the first. 24 people were taken to hospital in passing cars. The driver of the second tram had a fractured skull. It was estimated that over 40 people needed treatment, some being looked after in nearby houses before they returned home. A potentially tragic affair, but fortunately no deaths, and most people were allowed home that evening. And the accidents did not end there. Two buses carrying passengers from the same game collided in Royal Parade at about the same time as the tram incident. One woman was thrown onto the road, and others received minor injuries. 
The accident occurred directly outside the Royal Park Police Station in Royal Parade, so police officers were on the scene very quickly to assist. And then, to complete the hat-trick for the public transport authorities, two trams carrying passengers home from the Footscray-Richmond game in Footscray collided as well, although this was at a lower speed than the Ligon Street accident, and there were less injuries. A dramatic trip home for many supporters, but fortunately, nobody killed, and most injuries relatively minor. After 12 rounds, two-thirds of the way through the season, the competition was to have another break. This time for two weeks, to allow for interstate games against Western Australia on the next Saturday, with a second game on the following Tuesday, and then a game against South Australia in Adelaide on the return journey on the 31st of July. An epic trip in the time of railway travel. One review of the interstate games included a discussion of the potential for international games between Australia and Ireland, given the similarity of Australian football and the Gaelic code. The prompt was a plan for a tour by the Irish to America, and the suggestion that an Australian team travel to San Francisco to take on the Irish. Nothing came of this proposal, but a similar scheme did eventuate 40 years later, when former umpire Harry Beitzel organised a tour group of VFL players, christened the Galahs, to Ireland and the US to play Gaelic teams in 1967 and 68, 40 years after this article was published. This private tour was then followed by later official tours between Australian and Irish teams, starting in 1984 with the International Rules series. At this point of the season, Collingwood and Geelong led the table, with the Magpies ahead on percentage, with both teams winning 10 out of 12 games. Melbourne and Carlton were a game behind, and Essendon were fifth, one game behind Carlton, and then south. In the Argus, Old Boy previewed the remainder of the season and predicted that only these six teams had a chance to make the final four. While at the other end of the ladder, it was a new trio of Footscray, Hawthorne and North at the bottom. North, despite their close games earlier in the season, were still without a win, in a season that was becoming something of a slog for the Shinboners. Round 13, on the 7th of August, saw a couple of unusual incidents. Firstly, at the South Melbourne Footscray game, there was a phone call made to the South Club rooms just after half-time. The caller stated that South Melbourne's Ted Johnson, who had been in a fine run of form kicking goals, needed to return home immediately, as his mother was seriously ill. The name of a doctor was given. But luckily, the South Melbourne Secretary checked the name provided with a local doctor at the game. He did not recognise any such alleged doctor. The club secretary drove directly to Ted Johnson's home, and the door was answered by Mrs Johnson in perfect health. Meanwhile, back at the game, Ted Johnson kicked five goals in a comfortable win over Footscray, keeping them in contact with the four. The caller was never traced, and the prank was not appreciated by the club nor the players. A more violent incident unfolded at the Geelong St Kilda game. After some nasty on-field incidents, including Geelong's Arthur Rayson being kneed in the back by St Kilda's Stan Hepburn, breaking his ribs. As St Kilda left the ground, after the game, players were heckled, and offence was taken. Then blows were exchanged between player and spectators. One supporter laid in with a fence picket, and a St Kilda player grabbed the picket off the spectator and was defending himself from the onslaught. 
before the police arrived to intervene. A dangerous situation. There could have been much worse. Round 14, on the 14th of August, brought a sad reminder on the devastating risk of infection in an era before tetanus vaccinations, which were only introduced into Australia in 1953, and antibiotics such as penicillin, which were developed during World War II. Leslie Witto was a young 23-year-old player for Carlton, who had made his debut in Round 8, and in his sixth game against Geelong in Round 14, he broke his arm in a marking attempt. He was admitted to hospital, but developed tetanus on the following Sunday, and was isolated from other patients. Sadly, his condition became steadily worse. On the Wednesday, just a week and a half after taking to the field as a young, fit footballer, he died as a result of the tetanus infection to his injured arm. There was no break in the season. Carlton's round 16 game against Fitzroy went ahead as planned. It is also worth noting the different way the press dealt with this tragedy compared to today's media. If a player of today were to die from injuries sustained in a game, there would be saturation coverage and an outpouring of public grief. In 1926, it was dealt with in a few paragraphs and a mention of an appeal to raise funds for Widow's mother. Different times and perhaps reflective of an era where sudden death was more common than in our modern time. September saw the final two rounds of the home and away season and the race for the final four. The make-up for the four was far from certain. Collingwood and Geelong were in first and second spot with 13 wins, followed by Melbourne again behind. Then three teams were on 11 wins and separated only by percentage, battling for the fourth spot. Essendon was leading above South and Carlton, who were having a better season than recent years. Round 17 was to prove critical because Essendon and Carlton were playing each other and the loser of that game was likely eliminated, while 4th place South were hosting Collingwood. Melbourne and Geelong both had comfortable wins to ensure they did not open themselves to any risk. And South were valiant at home. Four goals down at three-quarter time, they kicked three goals, three behinds, and held latter leader Collingwood to just two points. But it was not enough. Collingwood held on to win by a single goal. At Windy Hill, Essendon were four goals up at three-quarter time. They would have known that South were in trouble and a spot in the four was theirs if they could hold on. Carlton were also looking at the same spot in the four that was opening up and they lifted in a desperate last quarter with the assistance of the wind. With 20 minutes to go, they were nine points down. Then Hurry Clover kicked a goal and the gap was only three points. But a goal by Essendon's Roland Watt sealed the game for the Dons and they were in the four. The season had seen higher scoring on a regular basis compared to any previous year, and the age noted that in round 17, across all games, there were 149 goals and 154 behinds, the highest ever scored in the history of the league. A worthy effort of calculation and record-keeping in an era without computers or electronic spreadsheets. The final round on the 11th of September had two main issues to resolve. Could Geelong beat Fitzroy by enough to overtake Collingwood on top of the ladder and gain the all-important right of challenge? And could 5th place South Melbourne defeat Essendon by about 30 points or more to sneak into the final four? Which would have been a cheeky effort, given that South had not been in the four all season, and Essendon had made 
their way into the four at the end of round 15. Collingwood hosted Carlton, and despite just leading by a goal at half-time, the Magpies dominated in the second half, winning by 49 points, which increased their percentage. Down at the Corio Oval, Geelong took on Fitzroy, knowing they needed a strong win to have any chance of overtaking Collingwood. But hitting the goalpost six times rather than scoring goals did not help their cause. They won by 55 points, but as the pencil on paper wielding Geelong supporters who did their calculations after the game realised before they headed home or to the pub, they knew they'd missed their chance. Collingwood had held on to top spot. At Windy Hill, the scores were close all day, and the lead changed several times before South pulled ahead and won by three points, meaning that they had finished the season on 12 wins. The same as Essendon, but just out of the final four on percentage. Their season was over, despite winning 10 of the last 11 matches. They had left their run too late. One more goal against Collingwood the week before, and they would have been in the four. At the other end of the table, North Melbourne joined Melbourne in 1919, and St Kilda and University on multiple occasions as clubs who had gone through an entire season without a win. Their best effort was a draw, although the number of close games meant that they actually had a better percentage than Hawthorne or Footscray above them. It was a tough year for the Shinboners. Geelong would play Essendon in the first semi-final, and Collingwood would play Melbourne in the second semi-final. On the Wednesday before the first semi-final, Votes for the Brownlow Medal were tallied, and the award for the fairest and best player, as the Herald now accurately labelled the award, was won by Melbourne's Ivor Warren Smith, who received votes in nine games, the best result in the three-year history of the medal. At this stage, umpires only awarded a single vote per game. The runner-up was Geelong's Kaji Greaves, who had finished first in 1924, and runner-up in 1925, and again in 1926. The first semi-final was on Saturday the 18th of September and Geelong were the hot favourites, having won three more games than the Dons. Geelong had beaten Essendon in their only encounter during the season at the Corio Oval in June. Essendon had a lean trot at that part of the season, not winning a game for the entire month, but they had won four out of their last five games, only missing out with a narrow loss in the final game of the season. So perhaps they could be confident of their overall form at the business end of the season. But the Dons would be without strong forward, Greg Stockdale, who had played every game and kicked 32 goals. He had collided with Stuart Russell at training and broken his cheekbone. Russell was knocked out for half an hour from the blow. Geelong were full of confidence and had chartered five special trains, even though this year members of the competing clubs would, for the first time, have to pay to attend the finals. A large crowd was expected. Geelong would be missing their reliable half-back, Frank Mockridge, who had cut off the top of his thumb at a work accident. The panel of experts from around the league clubs, consulted by the Herald, were in a majority for Geelong. 50,660 were at the game, a little down on the 1925 first semi, perhaps because the club members had to pay to get into the ground for the first time, but at least they had a new grandstand to fit more people in. The game was a close-fought affair for three quarters, and everyone expected the tussle to continue into the fourth. Geelong only a couple of goals down and with the breeze in the final quarter. But Essendon kicked four goals in the first five minutes to take their lead from 15 points to 40 and make it clear they were going to win the game. 
Before the final bell rang, thousands of spectators were streaming out of the ground. All interest had evaporated, except for the Dons. They won the day, 17 goals 15, 117, to Geelong, 10 goals 10, 70. And Geelong's appalling semi-final record continued. They had not won a semi-final in seven attempts across 30 years of the VFL competition. Even when they won the Premiership in 1925, it was because they had the right of challenge after losing the semi-final in that series. The Cats' first semi-final win will have to wait for a future season. While the Geelong supporters would have been bitterly disappointed that their Premiership defence was so suddenly over, the Geelong Advertiser reported on the Wednesday that many business people and shopkeepers were glad the distraction and the Saturday exodus to the capital were over. The departure of so many citizens was reported to cost the city an estimated £6,000 on that one day alone, not counting the loss from the eight games a season in Melbourne, when women could barely get civil attention when shopping on a Saturday morning. Not much business was done after 10.30 in the morning, given the number of people on the train to the city, when the question was asked about the other weeks of the season, when Melbourne clubs and their followers came to Geelong, the answer was short and sharp. They left Geelong as soon as possible after the game, and they did not do general shopping in the city. There were attempts to form a Western District competition for Geelong to focus on to keep supporters and business in the district. I'm not sure getting the town's club to leave the VFL was going to be very popular with the majority of Geelong citizens, despite the frustrations of some business owners and shopkeepers. Outside of Geelong, attention was focusing on the second semi-final, with the Sporting Globe reporting that Geelong's demise was enhancing Collingwood's chances for the Premiership, given the Cats were seen as the only team able to match the Magpies. But Melbourne was sure that they were not just making up numbers. In the two games between the clubs, Collingwood had won a close game and towards the end of the season, they took the Fuchsias, as Melbourne was then known, apart to win by nine goals, stamping their position as favourites for the flag. But then Melbourne won the last three remaining games of the season, fine-tuning their team for the rematch in the second semi-final. In the Friday Night Herald preview, the experts' panels were less willing to give a published opinion after so many had tipped along the week before, and it was a fairly evenly divided panel. 44,000 people were at the game, also down on the second semi from the previous year, despite the popularity of Collingwood and Melbourne playing on their home ground. It was a perfect day for football. Collingwood were favourites. They had finished the season on top of the ladder. They had thrashed Melbourne the last time they had played. They had won the preliminary final the year before, and they had so much more finals experience to draw on. In fact, you had to go back to 1922 to find a win for Melbourne over the Magpies on the MCG. And that was their first success in 10 years. And for the first half of the game, events were playing out to these expectations. At half-time, the Magpies had a 22-point lead, and Old Boy in the Argus reported that a disappointed Melbourne supporter said, quote, Another Melbourne failure. Collingwood are always too good, unquote. That supporter may have been considering beginning the journey home two minutes into the third quarter when the Magpies increased their lead to four goals. But then, something strange happened. 
Something wonderful if you back the red legs. Melbourne turned the game completely around, scoring eight goals to one in a third quarter masterclass. As reported by Old Boy, Melbourne ran and marked and kicked with such verve that Collingwood simply broke. Experience and reputation counted for nothing in response to this flourish of football skills. The Magpies made something of a comeback in the fourth quarter, kicking three goals to one, but it was too little, too late. Melbourne would be playing Essendon in the preliminary final, and Collingwood, using their right of challenge, would be waiting for the winner in the grand final. The preliminary final, as it was now commonly called in the press rather than just the final, was a matchup between two unfavoured teams. Essendon, who was in the four by only a few percentage points, and the inability of South Melbourne to score just one more goal in the second last game of the season to get a draw with Collingwood, and Melbourne, who had been expected by most to lose against later leader Magpies. But now, the previews expected a fine game from two informed teams playing attractive football. Essendon had the advantage of a rest before the preliminary, but perhaps Melbourne had the advantage of momentum. They had only played each other once. That match took place at Windy Hill in June, Essendon's worst month of the season, and Melbourne, with two players off the field, managed to hold on to win by six points. Melbourne took the same 18 into the preliminary final, while Essendon were able to play Stockdale, who had recovered from his broken cheekbone. The tipping experts in the Friday Night Herald favoured Melbourne, but not by much. Many thought Essendon would take the game. 49,000 people were at the MCG, about the same as the previous year, but the actual gate takings were down, despite club members having to pay. Perhaps the Melbourne Cricket Club members, who still got free entry, were increasing the crowd count to watch Melbourne without adding anything to the till for the VFL. It was a dry, windy day, with accurate kicking missing from both teams. Scores were level at half-time, but the most memorable, if unattractive, moment of the game occurred just before half-time, when Melbourne's centreman, Bob Corbett, was punched from behind by Essendon's Charlie Chukamay, breaking his jaw and knocking him out. This meant, in an era with no substitute players, Melbourne were reduced to 17 men for the second half of the game. Charlie May would be suspended until the end of 1927, but that had no impact on this game, although this incident did add more weight to the calls to allow a 19th player as a substitute for injury, which had long been opposed by the VFL. It would eventually happen in 1930. Corbett was examined by the club doctor at half-time, who bandaged his head and refused his request to be allowed back on the ground. The third quarter was a disorganised affair. Melbourne were a man down, but Essendon seemed to have been depressed or distracted by the vicious attack on Corbett by one of their own. Melbourne took the lead in the second half, but never by much. With 18 minutes to go in the final quarter, the Dons were only two points down. Halfway through the last quarter, Corbett woke up in the dressing rooms with no one else around. So he got up and made his way back onto the ground, head swathed in bandages, drawing cheers from the crowd and inspiring his teammates with his dedication and spirit, despite not actually getting to the ball. And even on the Essendon side, there was a moment of sporting chivalry that recognised Corbett was doing something special, if unwise. Corbett was standing in the Melbourne forward line, and the Essendon fullback, Harry Hunter, 
at 6 feet tall, or 180 centimetres in the modern money, and over 82 kilograms, had a chance to run through him. A legitimate bump from a player recognised for playing the game vigorously, never known to have taken a step back. But he sidestepped Corbett, appreciating the moment and the man was more important than the result. And the result did go Melbourne's way. Six goals, 6.42, to Essendon's five goals, 9.39. It had been a poor and at times spiteful game. But the Melbourne spirit and the inspiration of Corbett's crazy brave return to the ground saw the Red Legs into their first grand final since 1900. Melbourne had the harder statistical challenge as only two teams had won the premiership from third. Fitzroy in 1922 and Essendon in 1912. But Collingwood had their own track record of losing grand finals. Between 1911 and 1925 they had played in seven grand finals and lost five. They had plenty of experience in the biggest game of the season, but it was not always good experience. Looking at season 1926, Melbourne had won 16 of their 20 games. Collingwood had won 15 of their 19, which looks remarkably even. The tipping panel in Friday Night's Herald was again evenly split, but in general, Melbourne would have been considered the sentimental favourite, having come through two tough games, the injury to Corbett, and the fact that the Redlegs had not won a premiership for 26 years. As in so many previous, and many years to come, Collingwood was coached by Jock McHale, Earlier in the finals, he had written an article for the Herald where, despite his undisputed role as a senior coach, now in his 14th season and eight grand finals with two premierships, he was focused on sharing the credit and the support he got from others in the club. While the modern concept of multiple assistant coaches taking responsibility for defence, for midfields, forwards, etc. was still decades away, McHale noted that he could get advice on forwards and half-forward work from President Harry Curtis and Treasurer Bob Rush, and Alf Dummett could explain the elements of backline play to him. When he needed insights about the centre line, he could go to Percy Gibbs, and, not forgetting the prince of forwards, Dick Lee, for more analysis on goal-kicking. And these were just some of the people he listed that he could rely on for support. There is no doubt that responsibility and decisions centred on Jock McHale, but it's also clear that this coach of a century ago was laying down a model that many successful coaches of the modern era would follow. Charlie Tyson would captain the Magpies on the field again, as he had since 1924, and for his second grand final in a row. Although born in Victoria, he'd grown up in Kalgoorlie. He returned to Victoria and debuted with Collingwood in 1920, and played most of his career on the halfback plank. Melbourne had been one of the weaker VFL teams before and after the First World War, but the mid-1920s saw the team move up the table. One of the reasons was committeeman Joe Blair, known as JCB. He was a senior manager at the Vacuum Oil Company, which would in time become known as the Mobile Oil Company that we know today. Joe ensured that many Melbourne players got jobs at the company, making Melbourne an attractive destination for potential country and interstate recruits. In fact, 13 of the 18 players in the grand final worked for the Vacuum Oil Company, and if he did not work there, he might end up at Miller's Ropeworks in Brunswick. A young Ron Barassi had his first job at Miller's, but more about him 
in later episodes. Melbourne were led by captain coach Albert Chadwick, a Beechworth boy he'd put his age up by a year to enlist in the First World War, where he would serve in the Middle East with the Australian Flying Corps. He would also serve in World War II, achieving the rank of Wing Commander. His football career started in 1919, when he returned to Australia, playing a season for Paran, before joining Melbourne in 1920, playing most of his time at centre-half back. He would end his career with a season at Hawthorne as captain coach, but links to Melbourne were strong, and he chaired the club from 1950 to 62 in an era of five premierships. Along with many business roles, including chairman of the Gas and Fuel Corporation, he would also take on the role as Melbourne Cricket Club president during the 1970s as relationships with the VFL became strained and the question of where the grand final should be played was a live issue. So it is possible that we will hear more about this man besides his action in 1926 as captain coach of the Red Legs in their first grand final since 1900. The umpire was, as in 1925, Jack McMurray Sr., taking on the third of an eventual five grand finals in a VFL career that started in 1917 and continued all the way to 1936, umpiring over 300 games. In the lead-up to the grand final, Collingwood again teased their supporters with the possible return of retired champion Dick Lee. Spoiler alert, it did not happen. While Melbourne had to replace the injured Bob Corbett, a crazy brave return to the ground in the fourth quarter of a preliminary final was inspiring, but that could not be repeated in the grand final. The Red Legs created a little history by announcing a debut player for the grand final. Francis Popvine is one of six players who've played their first game in a VFL-AFL grand final. He would eventually go on to play over 100 games in a career that would see him appointed captain in 1932 and 33, before retiring in 1934. But it would all start in the grand final. By the way, Pop Vine worked at Miller's Rope Company and would eventually become their managing director. 59,632 people were at the MCG on a fine day, about 10% down on the previous year. They saw the curtain raiser, which was a grand final between the junior or reserve clubs, and it was an easy 50-point win for Carlton against Geelong. Some small consolation for the Blues, whose senior team had just missed out on the finals, and another disappointment for Geelong, especially as their junior team had topped the ladder but had been disappointing in the finals. Collingwood had won the toss for the change rooms, and they chose the larger home club's rooms, forcing Melbourne to prepare for their biggest game in 26 years in the unfamiliar visitors' rooms. Melbourne then won the toss before the game, and Albert Chadwick chose to kick with the wind towards the punt road end. And regardless of the unfamiliar change rooms, Melbourne came out the faster, more skillful team from the very first bounce by umpire McMurray. By quarter time, the Red Legs had a 22-point lead, built on fast attacking flourishes into the forward line and robust defence by their backmen. The second quarter saw Collingwood adding an element of Intimidation, according to Forward in the Age, where, quote, play became exceedingly fierce in the crushes, from which many a player staggered and reeled following a ruggedness on the part of an opponent, unquote. It was about a quarter on the scoreboard for the Magpies. They scored five goals, with the Red Legs only getting a major in the last minute of the quarter. In the Melbourne Cricket Club members' stand, it was noted that support was a little one-sided. Collingwood were often condemned, occasionally with some justification, but the Melbourne players could do no wrong. 
All around the outer, the supporters had much to discuss at half-time. Melbourne were leading by 9 points, 7 goals 7-49, to Collingwood's 6 goals 5-40. Would the Magpies' final experience give them the advantage in the second half? And Melbourne were playing their third big game in a row. Collingwood were rested after a week off. The consensus by many was that the first few minutes of the third quarter would decide the issue. And it was Melbourne that did all the running and attacking in the third quarter, leaving their opponents flat-footed and unable to stop the clever play. Goal after goal had the Melbourne supporters cheering, and some were in a condition bordering on hysteria. Ivor Warren-Smith had taken the job in the centre in the absence of the injured Corbett, and he was driving the ball forward. Melbourne were keeping the play open, moving the ball to the wings while Collingwood were trying to play the man. It wasn't working. As described in the age, in six wonderful minutes, they added four goals. But they were not finished yet. The goals kept coming, and Collingwood were left watching the onslaught. Seven goals to one had made the grand final almost certainly Melbourne's, but there was still one quarter to go. However, the only interest Magpie supporters had in the fourth quarter was whether Gordon Coventry could get another goal to take him to 83 for the season and set a new record. He did kick the record breaker and was congratulated by players from both teams. Melbourne supporters then hoped Chadwick would get a rare goal. It would top his day as captain coach to have at least one against his name. Yet his shot went astray, but no one really cared too much. Finally, the bell rang to end the match and the misery for Collingwood. Runners-up for the second year in a row, and the third time in six years. Their supporters were dumbfounded by such a lacklustre performance, with some harsh words said about more than a few players. Forward in the age described it as one of the worst off-days in the history of the club. There will be consequences, but that's for another episode. Melbourne players and supporters were celebrating. Everyone wanted to be in those small, too small, visitors' rooms, to share the occasion. Players from the 1900 team passing on their crown. Henry Harrison, the 90-year-old father of football, who was in the same rooms before the games, but was now congratulating them on their fine achievement. The club he helped found in 1859. The club he first captained in 1861, for a game he helped invent in 1858, now had their second VFL premiership. It must have been a proud moment for the man who had seen the game grow from wild scrums in the parkland outside the MCG to the dominant sporting code in much of Australia, with crowds of 60,000 in the stands of the MCG. Collingwood's captain, Charlie Tyson, and other officials forced their way into the Melbourne rooms to make the appropriate congratulations, and Melbourne's Albert Chadwick returned with them to congratulate the Magpies on their splendid sportsmanship. It must have been tough for the Collingwood players and their coach. Runners-up yet again, but they would make amends. Melbourne players were given a dinner in the Melbourne Cricket Club Pavilion, with many more congratulations offered. The team had the Premiership, the Brownlow medalist, and, in a season where scoring had never been higher, three players, Harry Moyes, Rob Johnson, who picked up a handy six goals in the grand final, and Harry Davey had all kicked more than 50 goals in the season. The players gathered again on Monday night for a smoke social, as they were called in those days. Informal gatherings, of men only, for drinks, a meal and some entertainment, and no shortage of smokes. 
Originally planned for about 200 people a few weeks earlier, the event saw 400 people crowded again into the Melbourne Cricket Club Pavilion. Albert Chedwood spoke and gave credit to the club secretary, Andrew Manzi, the club committee and the 34 players on the list. He said his share of the credit was therefore only one thirty-fourth. Albert Manzi provided a sobering context to the challenges the club had faced over the years. A decade earlier, the club had a magnificent team and been narrowly beaten in the 1950 semi-final by the premiers of that year, Carlton. But then every player went to the war, and when the team reformed in 1919, only one of those players, Charles Lilly, was able to take his place in the side that lost every game of that season. Lilly retired after six games in 1925, missing the premiership by one year. And the only survivor from the class of 19 to play in the premiership was Brownlow medalist Ivor Warren-Smith. A tough start to his career, but he and the Melbourne Football Club were on top in 1926. Reviews of the season generally considered that the standard of play had increased, but there was still too much violence on the field and too many acts that were a disgrace to the game. Umpiring was still a challenge. There was a lack of consistency with too many instructions to the umpires that changed from time to time. There were calls for substitute players for injuries as well as the right for an umpire to order a player from the ground for misconduct. As has often been pointed out, a team can be disadvantaged by a player being deliberately injured while the guilty player continues to play for that game. In administrative matters, there was more recognition of the increased size and complexity of the league and its management. At their December meeting, the delegates agreed that long-time secretary Edwin Wilson was to be awarded a considerable salary increase. The previous arrangements was a salary of £350, from which Mr Wilson had to find and pay for his own staff. But now the league would pay Mr Wilson £500 per year and a clerk or an assistant secretary was to be appointed at £300 per year. As part of the arrangements, it was agreed that the league office would be open all year for normal business hours. The never-ending growth of head office staff at the league headquarters was underway. And that's where we'll leave season 1926. In its 30th season, the VFL was growing strongly. Crowd numbers across the season were higher, even allowing for a dip in the finals. The 12-team VFL was now established, and the next season the league would and the next season the league would begin its fourth decade as the premier football competition in the country. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. And if you have questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History. Mm-hmm.